0: section five of the story of the first transcontinental railroad by william francis bailey this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by paul harvey progress made completion of eleven miles excursion officers labor supply ex-soldiers methods employed progress made headquarter towns rough times competition with Central Pacific for territory, stations, buildings, etc. As we saw in our last chapter, ground was broken at Omaha, December 2, 1863. This, however, was more in the nature of a jollification on the part of the citizens of Omaha over the selection of their city as the eastern terminus of the line it being under the auspices of the leading citizens, organized and enthused by the irrepressible George Francis train. Grading was commenced in July 1864, and track lane the spring of 1865. The start was not auspicious. The line was originally located directly west from Omaha, but after $100,000 had been spent, it was abandoned, on account of the hills and consequent heavy grades and two new lines were surveyed one to the north and then west and the other south nearly to bellevue kansas and then west this latter was called the oxbow route and was finally selected by the company notwithstanding violent opposition on the part of the people of omaha who feared that the company would cross the Missouri at Bellevue, thus leaving Omaha out. September 25, 1865, saw 11 miles finished, and in November an excursion was run from Omaha to the end of the track, 15 miles. This was gotten up by Vice President Durant, who took an engine and flat car, inviting about 20 gentlemen to go with him on the first inspection trip to Saline's Grove. Among the excursionists was General Sherman, who gloried in the undertaking, and expressed regret that at his age he could hardly anticipate living until the completion of the work. The party was very enthusiastic, and as the narrator naively puts it, the commissary was well supplied, the gentlemen enjoyed themselves. For a number of reasons, the work dragged. It took one year to complete the first 40 miles. The lack of rail connections east of Omaha were previous to January 1867, when the Chicago and Northwestern Railroad reached Council Bluffs, a very serious occasion of expense and delay. The work was new, those in charge were not at that time experienced, funds were scarce and the credit of the company not yet established, and as a result, the average rate of progress during the first 12 months was but a mile a week. The work of construction was in charge of Vice President and General Manager Thomas C. Durant. The location, General Granville M. Dodge, Chief Engineer, formerly General of the United States Army, and who had up to this time been in charge of the department. The operation of the line, forwarding of material and supplies, actual construction, etc., was in charge of Samuel B. Reed, general superintendent and engineer in charge of construction. The track lane was done under contract by Casement Brothers, General and Daniel, while Mr. H. M. Hoxie was ubiquitous with the title of General Western Agent. Colonel Silas Seymour of New York was consulting engineer, and Mr. W. Snyder, Assistant Superintendent and General Freight and Ticket Agent. Another of the reasons for the slow progress made up to 1865 was the scarcity of labor. The surrounding territory had no surplus workmen, and the east had not as yet grasped the idea that the road was actually under construction with the disbandment of the armies both north and south after the war this situation was changed for the better large numbers of ex-soldiers drifted west and were glad to find steady work at remunerative wages with the construction forces the secretary of the interior in his annual report for 1866, stated that out of 1,500 laborers employed on the Pacific railways, 300 were Negroes and performed their duties faithfully and well, and he recommended legislation looking to the employment of more of the surplus freedmen on the same work. Among the officials, engineers, and bosses, there were many who were ex-officers in the army. Thus the chief engineer had been a General, the consulting engineer, a Colonel, the head of the track lane force, a General. This can best be explained by quoting from a paper on transcontinental railroads read by General Dodge, before the Society of the Army of Tennessee, at Toledo, Ohio, September 1888. The work was military in character and one is not surprised to find among the superintendents and others in charge a liberal sprinkling of military titles. Surveying parties were always accompanied by a detachment of soldiers as a protection against Indians. The construction trains were amply supplied with rifles and other arms, and it was boasted that a gang of tracklayers could be transmuted into a battalion of infantry at any moment. Over half of the men had shouldered muskets in many a battle. The same facts are brought out by the following extract from a newspaper of that day. The whole organization of the road is semi-military. The men who go ahead, surveyors and locators, are the advance guard. Following them is the second line, the graders. Cutting through the gorges, grading the road, and building the bridges then comes the main body of the army placing the ties laying the track spiking down the rails perfecting the alignment ballasting and dressing up and completing the road for immediate use along the line of the completed road are construction trains pushing to the front with supplies the advance limit of the rails is occupied by a train of long boxcars with bunks built within them in which the men sleep at night and take their meals close behind this train come train loads of ties rails spikes etc which are thrown off to the side a light car drawn by a single horse gallops up is loaded with this material and then is off again to the front two men grasp of the forward end of the rail, and start ahead with it, the rest of the gang taking hold two by two, until it is clear of the car. At the word of command, it is dropped into place, right side up, during which a similar operation has been going on with the rail for the other side. Thirty seconds to the rail for each gang, four rails to the minute. As soon as the car is unloaded, it is tipped over to permit another to pass it to the front, and then it is righted again, and hustled back for another load. Close behind the track layers comes the gaugers, then the spikers and bolters. Three strokes to the spike, ten spikes to the rail, four hundred rails to the mile. Quick work, you say, but the fellows on the Union Pacific are tremendously in earnest. Or another writer, has it? We witnessed here the fabulous speed with which the line was built. Through the two or three hundred miles beyond were scattered ten to fifteen thousand men in great gangs preparing the roadbed with plows, scrapers, shovels, picks and carts and among the rocks with drills and powder were doing the grating as rapidly as men could stand and move with their tools long trains brought up to the end of the track loads of ties and rails the former were transferred to teams and sent one or two miles ahead and put in place on the grade then spikes and rails were reloaded on platform cars and pushed up to the last previously laid rail and with an automatic movement and celerity that was wonderful Practiced hands dropped the fresh rails one after another on the ties exactly in line. Huge sleds sent the spikes home. The car rolled on and the operation was repeated, while every few minutes the long heavy train behind sent out a puff of smoke from its locomotive and caught up with its load of material the advancing work. The only limit to the rapidity with which the track could thus be laid was the power of the road behind to bring forward material the above description applies to the later period of construction when the forces had become thoroughly organized and the work systematized the following table shows the rate of construction ground broken at omaha december second eighteen sixty three work commenced at omaha spring 1864. 11 miles completed to Gilmore, September 25, 1865. 40 miles completed to Valley, December 31, 1865. 47 miles completed to Fremont, January 24, 1866. 50 miles completed March 13, 1866. 100 miles completed June 2, 1866. 247 miles completed to the 100th meridian, October 5th, 1866. 305 miles completed, December 31st, 1866. 414 miles completed to Sydney, Wyoming, August 1867. 516 miles completed to Cheyenne, Wyoming, November 13th, 1867. 573 miles completed to Laramie, Wyoming, May 9, 1868. 745 miles completed December 31st, 1868. 1,033 miles completed to Ogden, Utah, March 8th, 1869. 1,086 miles completed to Promontory, Utah, April 28th, 1869. Formal Connection, made May 10, 1869. Regular train service commenced July 15, 1869. Completed, according to judicial decision, November 6, 1869. The progress made was daily Wired East and published in the principal newspapers. Thus, in the Chicago Tribune, items such as 1 and 9 tenths miles of track laid yesterday on the Union Pacific Railroad appeared in every issue. During the construction of the line headquarters were established at different points at the front which were used as a basis of operations for the construction of the section beyond. These places enjoyed a temporary boom, some of them like Jonah's Gourd to wither up and die away, others profiting by the start are today's points of importance. The first of these was North Platte, Nebraska, its selection being caused by the delay incident to bridging the river. This was the first terminus of the road during the fall of 1866 and up to June 1867. During this time, it was the distributing point for all the country west. The mixture of railroad laborers, freighters, etc. All of them, with more or less money, inaugurated a rough time and was the beginning of the wild scenes that attended the construction of the line. The town, during the winter, had a population of 5,000 and over 1,000 buildings. With the completion of the line to Sydney, Wyoming, in June 1867, the rough element left and established themselves at that point, leaving at North Platte about 300 of the more sedentary, law-abiding class who had determined on that point for their home. In moving to the front, houses were torn down, loaded on cars to be taken to the new site, and there re-erected. When it was known that Cheyenne was to be the terminus for the winter of 1867-1868, to 1868, there was a grand hegera of roughs gamblers prostitutes from all along the line and from the east the population jumped to six thousand dwellings sprang up like mushrooms they were of every conceivable character some simply holes in the ground roofed over known as dugouts others of canvas while some few were of wood and stone Town lots were sold at fabulous prices. The only pastimes were gambling and drinking. Shooting scrapes with a man for breakfast were an everyday occurrence, and stealing so common as to occasion no comment. It is said of old Colonel Merian, the then mayor of Cheyenne, that he advanced the city's script 18 cents on the dollar by inflicting a fine of $10 on those who made a gunplay, i.e. shot at anyone, and that it was his custom to add a quarter to the fines he inflicted, making them $10.25 or $25.25, with the explanation that his was dry work and the extra quarter was to cover the stimulant his arduous duties required. Such conditions brought about an uprising on the part of the more respectable element. Vigilance committees, with Judge Lynch in command, took hold, and from his court there was neither appeal nor stays. Witnesses were not held to be essential. The toughs were known, and the judgments of the court generally right. At least the defendants were not left in a condition to make complaint or appeal. The Vigilance Committee, during the first year of its existence, hung or shot twelve of the desperadoes, and were instrumental in sending as many more to the penitentiary. The effect was to compel the tough element to either leave or abide by the laws, and to put the decent element in control. The next headquarters was Benton, Wyoming. In two weeks, July 1868, a city of three thousand inhabitants sprang up as if by the touch of aladdin's lamp it was laid out in regular squares divided into five wards had a mayor and board of aldermen a daily paper and a volume of ordinances for the city government it was the end of the freight and passenger service and the beginning of the division under construction twice a day Long trains arrived from and departed for the east, while stages and wagon trains connected it with points in Idaho, Montana, and Utah. All the passengers and goods for the west came here by rail and were reshipped to their several destinations. Twenty-three saloons paid license to the city, while dance halls and gambling dens were even more numerous. The great institution was the big tent. This was a frame structure, 100 feet long and 40 feet wide, floored for dancing, to which and gambling it was entirely devoted. A visitor to the city thus described it, one to 2,000 men and a dozen or more women were encamped on the alkali plain in tents and shanties. Only a small proportion OF THEM HAD OUGHT TO DO WITH THE ROAD OR ANY LEGITIMATE OCCUPATION. RESTAURANT AND SALOON KEEPERS, GAMBLERS, DESPERADOS OF EVERY GRADE, THE VILEST OF MEN AND WOMEN MADE UP THIS HELL ON WHEELS AS IT WAS MOST APTLY TERMED. SIX MONTHS LATER, ALL THAT WAS LEFT TO MARK THE SITE WAS A FEW ROCK-PILES AND HALF-DESTROYED CHIMNEYS TOGETHER WITH PILES OF OLD CANS. The city, after a tumultuous existence of only 60 days, had got up and pulled its freight to the next headquarters. Green River, Bryan, Bear River City, and Wasatch were the headquarters successively. The first, owing to the railroad, having made it the end of a division and located shops there, has survived the other three are but memories. At Bear River City, The tough element, who had been driven out of the different points east, congregated in large numbers, proposing to make a stand, it being supposed it would become a permanent town. The law-abiding element numbered about a thousand, the toughs as many more. Three thugs were hung for murder, and in a reprisal the town was attacked on November 19, 1868 by the tough element they seized and burned the jail then sacked and destroyed the plant of the frontier index a printing outfit that followed up the railroad issuing a daily paper and which had been particularly outspoken in its denunciation of the lawless element they then proceeded to attack some of the stores but were met by the townspeople and in the pitched battle that ensued badly defeated They made an undignified retreat, leaving 15 of their number dead in the streets. From this time on, the tough element fought, shy of the city, and with the extension of the road, its business left. Today, there is not a thing to indicate that a town of four or five thousand had ever stood there. The tough element started in to make Rollins one of the hells, but the decent element had had enough and proceeded to clean up the town, showing they proposed to stand no foolishness. The last of the railroad towns was Wasatch, located at the eastern end of the longest tunnel, 770 feet on the road. In fact, it was the delay occasioned by this work that gave rise to the town. When the line was put down, a temporary track was built around the obstruction, so as to permit the materials for the track beyond, to reach the front. This place originally had a machine shop, roundhouse, and eating station, all of which were removed to Evanston in 1870. Upon the passage of the Supplementary Charter in 1864, the restriction confining the Central Pacific to the State of California was withdrawn, and they were authorized to build for 150 miles east of the California boundary. This latter restriction was also withdrawn by Congress in 1866, leaving the meeting point to be determined by the rapidity of the construction of the respective lines, or, as the Act of Congress put it, they could locate, construct, and continue their line until it should meet the Union Pacific Continuous Line. With the experience of three years behind them, and the land-grant, government bonds, and prospective earnings—not to speak of the element of pride ahead—the two lines entered into a race the like of which had never been seen. The rivalry extended, from the presidents of the respective companies, down to the boy who carried water to the graders. Both forces, justly proud of their achievements, considered themselves a little better than the other one form of the rivalry was as to which outfit could get the greatest amount of track down in one day the union pacific's forces led off with six miles soon after the central went them a mile better then seven and a half miles were put down by the union pacific the central pacific forces not to be outdone announced they could get down 10 miles inside of one working day. Vice President Durant offered to wager $10,000, it could not be done. And the Central Pacific outfit resolved it should be done. Waiting until there were but 14 miles for them to lay, they started in and laid 10 miles and 200 feet from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. using 4,000 men in the operation and then the union pacific outfit was mad they claimed if they had massed their forces made special preparation etc they could do better than their competitors but they could not prove it for there was no more track to lay the central pacific people ran their grade east of ogden to echo canyon this when their completed line was only built to the vicinity of wadsworth nevada The Union Pacific Railroad located their line to the California State Line and had their graders at work as far west as Humboldt Wells, Nevada, 460 miles west of Ogden. This line west of Promontory was never built, however, and it is said that $1 million was expended in this way. As it was, the Central Pacific had their grade established, some 80 miles east of promontory point 30 miles east of ogden and this when the union pacific were laying their completed track within a mile of and parallel to their grade the prize was so great that every nerve was strained on the part of both contestants as to who should push their track the further the advantages were about equal the central pacific were somewhat nearer the base of supplies. Their laborers were the quiet, orderly, and easily managed Chinese, and then they were in comparatively good financial shape. The Union Pacific, though farther from their base of supplies, were in railroad communication with the points of manufacture. Their men, while turbulent and hard to control, were enthusiastic and were three to one of the opposing forces. They were well-paid, well-housed, and well-fed, and were handled by men who had as a rule army experience back of them, and who certainly were bosses in the best and fullest sense. During the winter of 1868 to 1869, the advantage was with the Central Pacific Company. Their line across the Sierras was fully protected by snowsheds and they only met with one week's suspension of business from snow troubles during the whole winter, while the Union Pacific were blocked between Cheyenne and Green River for four long months. The rate of construction grew rapidly. During 1864, there were about 200 men employed on the grading and track lane. While it took one year to complete the first 40 miles, the second year, Year 1865 saw 265 miles done, over a mile a day working time, and this was exceeding from that on. There were about 2,500 graders employed in 1867, in addition to the 450 track layers, and from this number up until the completion of the road. Their forces numbered 12,000 men and 3,000 teams, while 600 tons of material were placed daily during the spring of 1869, when the contest was at its height. The maximum track, laid in one day, was seven and a half miles. As the line progressed, roundhouses were put up at Omaha, North Platte, Cheyenne, Laramie, and Ogden, each having 20 stalls, and at Grand Island, Sidney, Rollins, Bitter Creek, Medicine Bow, and Bryan of 10 stalls each. These were substantial buildings of brick or stone with sheet iron roofs thoroughly fireproof. In addition to the large shops at Omaha, where much of the building of equipment was done, repair shops were built at Cheyenne and Laramie. Stations were established at an average of 14 miles apart, the station buildings were built of wood and of two classes, three-fourths of them 25 by 40 feet, the remaining one-fourth 36 by 60 feet. At each station, the water tanks were erected, surmounted by windmills. Sidings, 3,000 feet long, were located at each station, and in some cases at points intermediate, 1,500 feet long. In all, there was about six percent of the main line distance in side tracks. To accommodate not only the public, but their own employees, the company put up good sized hotels at North Platte, Cheyenne, Laramie, and Rollins. Eating houses were established at Grand Island, North Platte, Sydney, Cheyenne, Laramie. Rollins, Bryan, Newgranger, long ago passed out of existence, Wasatch, afterwards removed to Evanston, and Ogden. During construction days, the charge for a meal was a dollar and a quarter, but with the opening of the road, this was reduced to one dollar, and afterwards to the present price 75 cents. End of section five, recording by Paul Harvey.